<laughs> yeah, you're welcome, guys. Um, let's say kudos to Spencer for A, making a horse made out of clouds and then using Europe in a video. Um, that was fantastic. Let me tell you guys how good of a parent I am real quick. So uh, we own that album on vinyl. My wife and I, we have a huge vinyl collection, and we, we taught our kids how to use a turntable, and they, you know... When you're a kid, you pick out music based on how cool the album artwork is, and, and the album artwork for the final countdown is pretty sweet. So uh, we listened to that record a lot, and one day we were on our way to school. I always take my kids to school every day, and my six-year-old goes, Dad, can we listen to the final countdown on the way to school? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and it hit me, Corey, you've done a really good job with these kids. And so I um, just want to throw that tidbit of information out there. So we have been uh, working through the book of Revelation for quite some time now. We're in the home stretch. We only got three more chapters and we're done with this, which is kind of sad because I, I really enjoy this book of the Bible. I hope you've enjoyed it. And we're getting into um, some really, really interesting and really, really beautiful chapters. If you haven't been with us, uh, chapter 18 is where we kind of start to see a turn in the book of Revelation, if you've been through the whole book of Revelation, or maybe you've listened to the podcast or watched the sermons or whatever, um, there's, a, there's, there's quite a spell right there in the middle where it gets pretty dark. In fact, about chapters 13 to 18 are, are seriously heavy, very, very heavy, pretty dark chapters. The turn starts to happen in chapter 18 when we see the fall of the great civilization, Babylon the Great, this city, this culture, it's, it's comprised of evil principles and selfishness, and, and it focuses on this leader, which we know is the Antichrist, and we see the fall of it in chapter 18, so things start to turn. Chapter 18 is a dirge, it's a funeral song, it's lamenting, it's the people of the earth lamenting their evil culture falling apart. Chapter 19, though, we don't see a funeral song, we actually see a celebration, because it focuses on the people who are followers of God celebrating the fact that evil has fallen. So not only has Babylon the Great fallen and the people of God are celebrating, a rider comes on a white horse, which is Jesus Christ, and engages the evil armies of the earth, hundreds of millions of people who comprised of this army. They meet in a place called Armageddon, and there's a very short-lived battle that takes place, okay? That's where the Antichrist is and, and the false prophet are thrown into hell and this very gruesome depiction of all these people being slaughtered in an instant by the, the, the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Now, this chapter, chapter 20, is probably one of the least talked about chapters in the book of Revelation. I don't know why, because it mentions the, what we're going to talk about, the millennial reign. It mentions it six times, I believe, in the Bible, six times, where it talks about this thousand-year period after the battle of Armageddon. There's a lot of ignorance about this chapter. I mean, it's just, it hasn't been taught much and it hasn't been taught well. And so there's a lot of ignorance about it, but we're gonna talk about this thousand year reign, this millennial reign today in chapter 20. And we're also gonna talk about judgment, which people don't like to talk about judgment, but we're gonna talk about that a little bit today, okay? Now listen, I'm gonna be the first to tell you I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything about the book of Revelation. I don't know everything specifically about chapter 20. So what I'm gonna do today is I've studied this chapter, gosh, for the last 10 years, I've studied this, this book of the Bible and have studied this chapter many times. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take the text 
I'm gonna take chapter 20 and we're gonna take the text at face value and we're, we're gonna try really hard not to pull in maybe things that we've heard or books that were written about the end of the world that are really bad theology. We're not gonna try to pull those things in. We're gonna take the word of God and we're just gonna let the word of God speak for the word of God. And we're gonna see kind of where it takes us, okay? So again, you may disagree with me on some of the things I say today, perfectly fine. We're not talking about necessarily salvific things in chapter 20, okay? There are some salvific things, but the thousand-year reign is not a salvation thing if you disagree with me on this, okay? So after all that being said, I'm gonna pray. We'll jump into this. You should have notes, handouts in front of you. Everything's gonna be on the screen. If you have the app, the Experience Community app, click on service times and sermon notes. You have the scripture there. If you have a Bible... We're in chapter 20 of the very, very last book of the Bible. We are almost at the very end of the entire Bible. We're gonna break it up into small chunks. It's a short chapter, um, but it's a very, very eventful chapter. And maybe you'll hear some things today that you've maybe never heard before, okay? Which is fun, all right? So anyways, let me pray and we'll dive into this, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for everyone coming out today, even though the weather is just absolutely awful and Thank you, God, for them coming out and hearing the word and, and, and breaking open their Bibles today and studying along uh, with me today, God. Lord, I pray that uh, as we talk about some very interesting things today, I pray that you give us the wisdom to pull out the things that we need to apply to our lives, the, the principles that work on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday, God, wherever we are, that they work all the time. I pray that you give us the wisdom to pull those out and to really meditate on those. Lord, we pray that you bless this church. Pray that you bless every church in our community. Pray, God, that you keep your hand on all the nonprofits we work with, Lord, and we pray that everything we do today, that it, that it edifies us, that it lifts us up, but it also gives you glory and that it honors you ultimately, Lord. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, chapter 20, all right? John says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. So in chapter 19, we saw this extremely brief battle at Armageddon. After this battle, after Jesus destroys the evil armies, he casts the Antichrist, he casts the false prophet, that's a false spiritual leader, into hell. They're the first ones to go to what we know as hell. But Jesus has not dealt with the source of the battle yet, Satan, but now he's about to. So the same angel, if you were with us in chapter nine, who opens up this abyss and all this demonic influence flows up out of this abyss, the same abyss, the same angel shows up and he is going to cast Satan into what the Bible sometimes calls Hades, which is kind of a temporary hell, if you will. The difference between hell and this abyss, the abyss mentioned here is not a permanent place. It's not even a place designed for torture. It's a place to hold Satan, to hold demons, and to hold the evil people who have died throughout history. It's a temporary holding spot until God finally judges them. 
okay? It's the difference. Now, the great chain that holds Satan in this abyss is probably not literally a chain, right? Because we know that iron and steel cannot hold the devil. So this is a spiritual binding. It's a metaphor for something that spiritually binds Satan. If you'll also notice this, it calls the devil four different names in this part. It says the dragon, the serpent, Satan, and the devil. The reason why all of the titles of Satan are used is the binding that God is going to do during this thousand years is going to be complete. It is going to be, he is gonna be completely sealed off and out of communication with, with anyone else, right? So it is a complete uh, a sealing off of the devil. Now, the purpose of this thousand years that Satan is bound, the purpose is not punishment. The purpose is isolation. It is keeping Satan away from humanity for a millennium, for 1,000 years. And then it says, after this thousand years, Satan will be released for a short time. And during that short time, he will deceive a large group of people. Now, again, this is not only a highly ignored part of, of the Bible in general, this is a part of Revelation that people just don't talk about for some reason. We don't discuss this thousand-year reign. The ones who are brave enough to kind of get into this conversation about the thousand-year reign, there's really three views that kind of permeate people's thoughts when it comes to this thousand years. Now, I'll just tell you straight up, I fall in the first camp, what's called premillennialism. That means that Jesus will come back and on this earth will literally rule this earth for 1,000 years after the battle of Armageddon, okay? That's what I believe. Now, if you don't believe that, it's perfectly fine. I, I, I think I'm right, but that's perfectly fine. <laughs> the second view is called amillennialism or amillennialism. And a lot of Christians fall into this one. This means that the thousand year reign is just a metaphor. I have a hard time with that because it doesn't appear to me that Satan is bound spiritually right now on earth. Seems like he's doing a pretty good job screwing stuff up right now on earth. That's just me. That's my take on culture right now. But some people, when I say some people, the entire church of Christ, this is their stance, and I'm not trying to dog on the church of Christ, but they take an amillennial view. A means not, so no millennium, that it's just a metaphor, and it means that Christians have spiritual dominance. I don't see that on earth right now either. In fact, only two of the eight billion people on earth claim to be Christians, and of those two billion, I'd say all of them are not following Jesus the way they should. So I wouldn't say we have spiritual dominance on planet earth right now, just me. The third view is even a harder pill to swallow. It's called pro-millennialism. This is the idea that one day Christians will witness to so many people that the entire earth will give their lives to Jesus Christ. Uh, don't hold your breath for that one. I don't think the book of Revelation supports that in any way, so nor does the Bible support that in any way, but some people believe in what's called pro-millennialism. So it says, after this thousand years, however you view this thousand years, I think it's literal, but after this thousand years, it says that Satan will be loosed again. Why? There is so much debate on why God would allow Satan out of this abyss again. Now, there's a lot of different ideas. The one that I think makes the most sense and the one where I kind of hang my hat is that God is proving to humanity that environment shouldn't dictate our love for God. What does that mean? We often hear people say, if, if conditions were better, I would follow Jesus. 
If I wasn't so busy, if I didn't have an abusive father, if I would have grew up in a more affluent home or all these, I would be a better follower of Jesus. My marriage would look better if I had more time or this would look better if I had, all these things would be different if my environment was different. We also hear a lot of people say, well, if I could just see God, I would believe in God. For three and a half years, God walked around on earth and they ended up nailing him to a tree. In fact, if you go into the Old Testament, when the people of God, the people of God, were traveling out of Egypt on their way to the promised land, they saw food fall from heaven, water come out of a rock. They saw pillars of fire lead them through the desert. They saw the top of Mount Sinai where the presence of God was visibly there, and they still worshiped a golden calf. Whenever people say environment dictates my belief, that's garbage. Environment should not dictate our belief. We should believe in God regardless of what is going on around us. And God is going to prove that some people only follow him when the environment is perfect. And he's gonna prove that during that thousand years, okay? So let's get into the thousand years. John says, then I saw thrones and people seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for 1,000 years. I don't know if you've ever asked this or not. You probably have. What would the world look like if Jesus ran it? Not only Jesus, what would it look like if Jesus was the king of the earth, right? Literally the king of the earth. And it was all perfect Christians that ran every corner of society. Well, that's what's gonna happen during this thousand years. After the evil armies that were led by the Antichrist are destroyed, after Satan is bound for a thousand years, Jesus, I believe, is going to literally set up his kingdom on this earth. There will be no war there will be no hunger. It even says in the book of Isaiah that even the animals will not be savage, that they will be tame. So the redeemed people of God will rule for a thousand years on a repopulated earth. If you're having a hard time imagining that, it's basically the Garden of Eden all over again, that God is going to set it up exactly like he did at the beginning. It's going to be perfect, run by perfect people, led by a perfect king, Jesus Christ. And so John sees in this vision, he sees people seated on thrones. Now there's argumentation on who this is and it really boils down to it can be one or two people or, or both of these people together. This is either all people who follow Jesus Christ throughout time or possibly it's just the martyrs. I believe it's both. And these people will be given different levels of authority. I would imagine based on how we lived in this life, when we we're resurrected in our new bodies, we will be given different levels of authority based on how well we handled our authority now. So imagine this, if you can. 
Imagine if the economy and the banking system was run by perfect Christians. Imagine if entertainment was run by perfect Christians. Imagine if the housing market and the government were all ran by followers of Jesus in their glorified state, their perfect state, perfect minds, perfect bodies. What is happening in chapter 20 of Revelation is what Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, that one day the meek will inherit the earth. They will literally inherit the earth. They will run the earth, just like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. So again, some of you are like, well, I've never heard that before. We're just staying to what the text says. If we read chapter 20 and we take it at face value, it appears as though all believers of Jesus are resurrected after Christ binds Satan, were given different positions of authority on earth along with the martyrs. Then after this thousand years, all the rest of the people will be resurrected. But this first resurrection, it appears to be of believers, of Christians, okay? It's called the first resurrection. So if the Bible mentions that there's a first resurrection, it kind of makes sense that there must be a second resurrection as well. Now, there's a bunch of different opinions on that as well. Some believe it's a metaphor. Some believe that one is the rapture and then the second one is this resurrection. I don't believe that. What it appears like the text says is that the first resurrection is of all believers. The second resurrection are of people that did not follow God. And John writes that the people who were resurrected first are blessed because the second death has no power over them. So again, if it mentions a second death, there obviously is a first death. The first death we're all pretty aware of, right? That means that all of us in this room are going to die. The Bible says that, right? We all have an appointed time to die. That's talking about this, this flesh that you have right now, right? This is going to die one day, our physical bodies. The second death is not a physical death, it's a spiritual death. Now, let me clarify. All of us will live forever, whether you go to heaven or hell, all of us will live for eternity, and we will all be given new bodies. But what the second death means, the first death and the people who were resurrected the first time, we will go to an eternity with Christ, right? Those who are resurrected in the second resurrection, those people who have their new bodies will have their bodies permanently tormented in hell. That is eternal damnation. And so John says, blessed are you if you're resurrected during the first resurrection. The second death has no power over you. You have no worry of eternal damnation. So why is this such a struggle? Why do we as Christians not talk about the millennial reign? Again, even though the Bible mentions it like five or six times, why don't we talk about this? I think the reason why we don't talk about it, especially in the United States, is we have become addicted to instant gratification. We have really, really bad theology in the United States. It continues to get worse but our eschatology, our talk about the, the coming of Christ is usually really, really not biblical. And so we have this idea in the United States that we're just gonna live these squeaky clean, great lives with no struggles whatsoever. And one day Jesus is just gonna zap us out and we hang out in, in heaven for eternity on a cloud and there's no work, there's no nothing. Everything is good forever. And that is just not what the Bible says. There is this process by which we go through, and the millennial reign is going to be a part of the process of humanity until we get to our permanent heaven. But again, 
We've become a culture that we just like instant gratification. We hate processes in Christianity. Even when we talk about discipleship in Christianity, well, we need to disciple people in a month. Jesus spent three years with people before he fully discipled them. And even at that point, they weren't completely ready, but we want it now. We want churches to be big now. We want everything free or we want it cheap and we want it right now. And that's not the way God always does things. Even with the human evolution, with human development, it's not like that. God only created two full-grown adults. That's all he's ever done. It was Adam and Eve and they were fully grown. Ever since then though, the development of humans has been a process. And all of you women in here know that if that process gets interrupted and if a child comes too early, that there is developmental issues, it, become a, it becomes a serious problem. It's the same way in our relationship with God. It's a process. And when we try to rush the process or longer, just ignore the process altogether, we become unhealthy. Something is wrong with us. That's why we don't focus on things like this thousand year reign because we just think God zaps us up instantly. We're not gonna deal with anything. It doesn't matter that Jesus said, in this life there will be struggles. In this life there will, be, there will be awful things that happen. We ignore those things because we're in the United States, right? Nothing bad ever happens to Christians in the United States. We're just gonna be zapped out and everything's good. All right, sorry, hung on that too long. <laughs> then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven, oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong part. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. At the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, when you're reading this chapter, you have to ask yourself why. God, why in the world would you let Satan out again? Some believe this is a retelling of the battle of Armageddon. I don't know how the scripture would say that. It, it, it's not. Some people think this is God flexing his muscle on his sovereignty. Look, I'm always in control. I'm going to let another rebellion happen just so I can wipe it out and prove to everyone how strong I am. I don't, I don't really know if I believe in that either. Another, another group of people think that this is God showing us that he is committed to free will. Again, I think the best option for why Satan is loosed is it shows us again that environment should not be the determining factor for us loving God. The reason why no one rebelled during this thousand years is there was nothing to rebel to. Satan was bound, there was no temptation, there was no evil, everything was good. When we were removed from any kind of choice, basically, of course everyone followed Jesus. But right when there was a choice, right when the devil was loosed again. It said that so many people were deceived, it was like the sands of the sea. And so John says that the number was an astronomical number of people who turned their backs on Jesus, even though they've had a thousand years of perfection. Now, people who are huge Revelation people who get into the, the weeds of Revelation, they see Gog and Magog. It's China and Russia, right? 
It's not China and Russia. They may have a part of it, but it says from all four corners of the earth, which doesn't mean the earth is flat, but all four corners of the earth, it says that people rebelled against God and went around the encampment of the saints. So more than likely, Gog and Magog is a metaphor for rebellious people. These were actual people in the Bible, Gog and Magog. One was a land, one was a person. And so it more than likely represents a rebellious people. And it says they went around the encampment of the saints. This is very kind of Old Testament imagery. When they traveled in the Old Testament, the the people of God from Egypt to Israel, they stayed in camps, right? And in the middle of the camp was the presence of God, the tabernacle. We see in verse nine, kind of a foreshadowing. When we get to heaven, there is no temple, there is no tabernacle because all of it, right? God encompasses all of it. And so we start to see kind of a foreshadowing of that. We also have a second battle. If you were here during the battle of Armageddon when we talked about that, it wasn't really much of a battle. Jesus shows up, words come out of his mouth, hundreds of millions of evil people are obliterated. Not much of a fight. This one's even shorter than that. It says that it it doesn't even mention God opening his mouth or anything, but just fire comes down, burns up all the bad people. The big difference between this battle and Armageddon is this is the definitive end of evil. After this point, there will be no more evil that we will ever have to deal with. Look at how easily Jesus cast Satan into hell. There's not even much to say about it. Jesus just grabs him, throws him into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever and ever, and that's the end of that. Quick, to the point. And so then we get into the last part of this story where we're gonna start to see eternity, okay? Now it says, then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them, and each of them was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we have to use our imaginations here for a second. If you use your imagination, think about this. In verse 11, It says that the earth and the universe, the heavens, fled from the throne of God. At this point, everything that God had created, he uncreates. He he undoes it all. It all goes away. I was talking with, there's a young man named Graham that comes to church here uh, on Saturdays. He's actually getting his degree in astrophysicism. He's a very smart kid, right? I geek out on stuff like that. I love it. And there's a couple of different theories that astrophysicists actually have about the universe. They think it's expanding, but they think one day it will reach a point to where it will stop and then it will actually implode on itself and then kind of reform again. It's interesting, the Bible tells us this. As Christians, sometimes we're afraid of terms like Big Bang Theory. There's nothing to be afraid of with that terminology. The Big Bang Theory was a massive expansion of light, an instantaneous expansion of light. I believe in chapter one of Genesis, it says, God said, let there be light, right? You don't have to be afraid of terms like that. Science is not our enemy. 
And so when astrophysicists say, yes, there was this massive expansion of light that formed our universe, I believe that. Yes, God spoke it. There will also be this collapse of our universe, astrophysicists believe, chapter 20, and then there will be a new universe, which we're going to see in chapter 21. Fascinating. So the earth and heaven fled from his presence. He undoes everything. And when God lays down his final judgment of humanity, only a couple of things remain. In the book of 2 Peter, it says this, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. Look at this. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. This is a very sobering thought. There will come a time when all that remains between us and eternity is going to be us, God on his throne, and there's going to be a couple of books in front of us. And so this is when the second resurrection takes place. It says that death and Hades give up their dead, the seas give up their dead, everything gives up its dead. And we are all gonna stand in front of the great throne of God's judgment. And it says that the books were opened up. Now, what does that mean? Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew chapter 16. He talks about these books. Before we are sent to our permanent place, either heaven or hell, all of us will stand in front of God and there will be two books. One will be a book specifically for us, the book about our lives, and it will have our deeds in it. Whenever Christians talk about works don't matter, in this chapter alone, it says that works matter twice. It will be judged by what we do or don't do. It says it two times in the part that I just read. So Jesus Christ, being the perfect judge, he's gonna have evidence about our life. The first one, again, is the book about us. So what Jesus is going to do is I'm gonna stand in front of him and Jesus is gonna say, Corey, you say that you followed me. Let's look at your life. Let's see if what you've done backs up the statement that you're a follower of me. Now listen, here's the grace in all this. A lot of you are like, oh crap, I've done a lot of bad stuff, right? If we have asked God to forgive us of those things, they're not in that book anymore. They're erased. You don't have to worry about those things. God will only see the good things you've done and he will reward you for the good things you've done. You don't have anything to worry about. Now, if there's sin in your life that you have not addressed, if there are things that you're doing right now that you have not addressed and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that should make you sweat a little bit. Because, as Peter said, all things will be disclosed. All things. God has a very good memory unless we ask for forgiveness. And then he chooses not to remember those things. But what it, what it reminds us of is this. Fruit always follows faith. We are not saved by our works, but when we're saved by grace through faith, works should be a natural byproduct of the Christian. I hope you guys hear me in here. Whenever people say I'm a Christian, but they don't live like a Christian, they're not a Christian right? A tree will be known by its fruit. That's what Jesus himself said. So faith without works is not saving faith. It's not the faith that matters to God, okay? So we must back our faith up by what we do. The second piece of evidence is a second book. Now, this book is for all humanity. It either has our name in it or it doesn't have our name in it. If it doesn't have our name in the book of life, it says very black and white, if your name is not in the book of life, you're not welcome into heaven. You're thrown into the lake of fire. Now, that is an unpopular thing to say. It's an uncomfortable thing to say. But eternal damnation is something that is taught in the Holy Bible. 
And I am blown away and greatly disturbed with how many Christians do not believe in a literal hell. Jesus talked about it, John talked about it, Paul talked about it, Peter talked about it. They all talked about a literal place, not even including the references in the Old Testament that talk about it. So this is the second death. What is the second death? It tells us black and white, the lake of fire. All of us in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we will all receive another body after our first death. Those who have lived for Jesus, that body goes on to be glorified and with God forever in heaven. Those of us who have not lived for God, that body goes to a place where it will be eternally tormented day and night in a lake of fire. Now, whether it's a literal lake of fire is completely irrelevant. Here's the thing. An eternity without God would be an indescribably awful place to be. Whether it's literal fire or not literal fire. Why? Let me tell you why. There's a thing called common grace. If you've never heard this term before, this means that God is gracious even to people that don't even acknowledge that he exists. The Bible says that the sun rises and sets on, on the good and the bad, that we all receive common grace. We often ask why do bad things happen to good people? A better question is why do good things happen to bad people? Because God is gracious. The reason why you're breathing right now and you have blood coursing through your veins is because God is good. Even if you don't acknowledge God, every good thing that you produce or that happens to you is because he is good. So imagine an existence where there is no common grace, where there is nothing good. We are completely removed from any trace of God. That is hell. That is an unfathomably awful place to be. Because humans, even without the devil, humans left to their own devices will rip themselves apart. We will tear each other up. So even if the devil wasn't in hell, we would do a good job of making it an awful place to be without any trace of God in us. So let me run through this real quick for those of you who, who are thinking about chronology. There will be seven years of tribulation, right, before Jesus comes back. I personally believe that Christians will go through almost all seven years of those. I believe that, that we will be taken out either by death or by, by God rapturing us out, if you want to use that word. But I believe it comes after the seven years, before God's wrath is poured out. That's what I personally believe. Then after that, there will be the battle of Armageddon. Jesus will come back, annihilate these evil armies, and he will set up the 1,000 years of Jesus reigning on earth. And that's when all of us are resurrected and we lead with him. After that 1,000 years, Satan is loosed. There's a second rebellion. That rebellion is quickly crushed. All other people are resurrected. We will be judged, the books. We will go to our eternal place after that. That's how I believe the book of Revelation teaches eschatology or the end times. This is the way the text says it to me. You may disagree with this, and that's perfectly fine, but this is the way that I understand the chronology of the end, okay? Let me get to some questions, though. The first question is this. We talked about a group of people and God proving to us that our environment should not be the determining factor if we follow God or not. So let me ask you a question. You have to be honest. How often do we use our environment or our circumstances as an excuse for not being better followers of Jesus? Well, I had an abusive parent. Join the club, me too. Well, my parents were divorced. Well, we lived in a bad neighborhood. 
Well, we lived in an area of the world where there weren't a lot of Christians. Well, there's this. Well, there's that. How often do we use the excuse of environment? Well, I was hurt by the church. Sick of that excuse, by the way. All these things that we say as an excuse to why we don't have a relationship with God. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but none of them are going to hold any weight when you stand in front of Christ. It's going to be you and him, and you're going to have to give an account for the decisions you have made, regardless of the things that have happened to you. I hate to be the guy that says that. Here's the thing, though. Let me go on the flip side of that. I will give it to you, though. Environment does play a role. There are things that we could change that would make a huge difference in our lives. So environment does play a role. That means that who you hang out with is important. What you watch is important. Where you go is important. So if you're one of those people that says, well, Corey, environment does matter, I'll give it to you. Environment does matter a little bit. There are some things that are controllable and some things that are uncontrollable. So if you believe that environment matters, which I believe environment does factor in there, why aren't we more proactive in changing the things that we can change? People come up to me all the time. Ladies come into my office. Corey, I had an affair on my husband. I don't know how it happened. Every time my husband and I would get in an argument, I would confide in this old boyfriend of mine and we'd go out and get lunch and we'd go see movies and we'd talk. And one night he wanted me to come over and watch a movie at his apartment. Corey, I don't know how the affair started. Really? I have a whiteboard in my office. We can like bullet point it and I can show you step by step how it happened. No man should have your cell phone number beside your husband anyways. Maybe it started there. Legalistic, Corey. No, I have a good marriage. And those of you who call me legalistic are the ones who are having issues with yours. You can call me legalistic all day long. I love my wife so much that I put up high boundaries around me to make sure that I don't cheat on her. So listen, environment does matter. Corey, we've been having sex. I don't know how it happens, right? You don't know how that happens? I guess I can show you on a whiteboard there too. I I don't... Interesting. You know, here's the thing though. Whenever people say, well, man, I keep looking at porn. I don't know how it happens. You, You don't know how the laptop got open and you don't know how you punched in those words? Really? Maybe if the laptop wasn't there, you wouldn't fall to it as much. Maybe if you didn't talk to the dude that flirted with you at time, all, all the time at work and you're married, maybe if you didn't give that guy the time of day, maybe you wouldn't slip into that affair. Maybe you wouldn't be constantly struggling with these different things if we watch different shows or listen to different music. Maybe if we hung out with good people that also love Jesus Christ and read the word of God and prayed together. Yes, environment matters. The things that we can decide to change, why aren't we a little bit more proactive in changing those things? Maybe we wouldn't fall to sin so much if we didn't hang around it so often. Novel idea, just throwing it out there. Let me ask you this though, the parts of our environment that we can't change, would you love Jesus Christ even if your circumstances never got any better? I think a lot of us are more in love with the benefits of being a Christian than actually we are with being in love with Jesus. I think a lot of us love Jesus because we don't want to go to hell. I think a lot of us love Jesus because we don't want to be like poor. I think a lot of us love Jesus because we don't want our marriage to fall apart or we don't want that guy to leave us. I'll go to church. Just don't leave. We're more in love with the benefits of following Jesus than we are with Jesus himself. So let me ask you though, if it never got any better, The book we're going to do after this is a very, very short book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. It's a fantastic book. 
In chapter two, I believe, Habakkuk says something that is extremely profound. Habakkuk says, even if the fig trees never bloom again, Jesus, I'll still love you. God, I'll still love you. He didn't say Jesus. God, I'll still love you. So I ask myself the question, if God never blessed you again, would you still love him? If he never did anything else for you, has he already done enough? Would you still follow God if the circumstances never change? If the job situation never changes? If he never comes back? Would you still love him? Here's the next question. Do we all in this room fully comprehend that one day all of us will spend eternity somewhere? I put it in orange because I don't think a lot of us really do fully comprehend this. Do you fully comprehend that all of us will one day stand in front of Jesus Christ? It says in the Bible that all things were created through him and for him. One day we will stand in front of the creator God and he will say, Corey, you said you were a Christian. Let's actually look at what you did. Do you know that all of us will have to do this? Do you understand that? Now let's just say for argument's sake, all of you in this room understand that one day your neighbor, your children, your wife, your husband, your aunt, the guy in the cubicle next to you, if we fully understand everyone in our class, everyone at MTSU, everybody, if we fully understand that everyone will be held accountable for what they have done or not done, if we understand that, wouldn't you think that that would make us live our lives a little bit differently? A man named Craig Groeschel wrote a book about a decade ago called The Christian Atheist, which means they believe in Jesus, but they don't live like they believe in Jesus. The Christian Atheist. We say we believe in a God, right? How many times do you guys hear that all the time? I believe in Jesus. I do all these things that the devil does, but I believe in Jesus. It's a Christian Atheist. It's someone that believes that there's a God, but they don't live like there's a God. If we truly believe the things that this word says, if you truly believed in Revelation chapter 20, wouldn't that change the way you handle your marriage? Wouldn't that change the way you talk to your children? Shouldn't that make you want to pray with your children? Shouldn't that make you want to invest in your children? Shouldn't that change your attitude at work? Shouldn't it change how you talk to the person that doesn't believe? Shouldn't that make you stand stronger on the principles of the Bible? We live in a Christian culture right now that is so theologically wrong. We're the most Bible, biblically illiterate people that have ever lived, ever. In the freest nation on planet Earth where you can get a Bible almost any bookstore. And we don't know it. We don't read it. But if you know that Christ is coming back, wouldn't that inspire you at least a little bit to dig into that word and see what God expects out of us? Shouldn't this prod some sense of urgency? I, I, I mean, I don't know, should it? And we say it, and then we go right back out, man, and like, we have so many interactions every single day, but people are like, well, I don't wanna offend people. You know what we're doing a really good job of right now in the United States? Loving people straight to hell. A hell that we don't even believe in. Hey, you can live sexually however you wanna live. Even though the Bible talks about certain things six or seven times, 
You can live however you want to live. The second largest Protestant denomination on planet Earth divided over what is sexuality and how should it be played out. Whole denominations that teach that there is no literal hell. There is no consequence for your actions. You have to do biblical gymnastics to get around some of the things that these major denominations are allowing to slip through the cracks. I'm not one of those revelation people that think like, you know, God's gonna come back next Wednesday. But the more I see the culture of Christianity, I'm not talking about non-believers. Guys, we can't expect non-believers to act like believers. But I expect believers to act like believers. And whenever believers stop acting like believers, eventually Jesus is gonna have his fill. And though I don't necessarily think that God's gonna come back next Wednesday, the more I see this culture play out, the more I'm thinking, God, maybe you're coming back sooner than I give you credit for. Every day you guys come across people that need to know Christ. Will you offend some people? Absolutely. Why do I say that? Because Jesus offended a lot of people. Jesus would start off speaking to thousands and by the time he was done, he just had his 12 best friends and he looked at them and he said, are you guys gonna leave too? You know what? All of them except one did. There was only one of them that showed up at the cross, John. The rest of them did leave. They came back except for Judas. But even his best friends left. Do you love people enough to tell them the truth? There is no love without truth. There's enabling, but not love. Do you believe in this word and do you believe in God enough that it changes the way you talk to your family? That it makes you wanna read the word of God? That it makes you wanna be dedicated to a Christian community? That it makes you wanna go into your schools and love people and pray that God gives you an opportunity to organically share your faith? Do you believe in this enough that when you have a bad attitude with that server that gives you terrible service, that that may change the way they look at Christians? Do you fully comprehend that all of us will be held accountable? Do you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you live a life that hates sin, what I mean by that is, it doesn't mean you're perfect. None of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. If you live a life that when you make mistakes, it bothers you, it grieves you. So you ask God to forgive you when you make mistakes. If that's the kind of life you live, you don't have to be afraid of that book. When God opens up that book about your life, if you've lived a life in a relationship with Jesus, a true relationship with him, there's not gonna be any bad stuff. Jesus erases that stuff. It says in the Bible that when you ask for forgiveness, he casts our sins into the deep sea. It says that he casts them as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. So you don't have to worry about those things. When he opens up that book, if you've lived a life in a relationship with Christ, he's only gonna see the good things and he's gonna reward you for those good things. You don't have to worry about that book. I will say this, though. 
If your lips have been close to God, but your heart has been far away, if you've told everyone that you follow Jesus, but your actions don't support that claim, chapter 20 should make you a little bit nervous. It should bother you a little bit. Even if you are in a tight relationship with God, the fact that your neighbor may not be, that should bother us. The fact that your coworker may not be, you might be sitting next to someone right now. That means that we love people, we pray for people, we look for a natural opportunity to share the truth with people. We even risk being ostracized or being pushed away or being called names in order to tell people the truth. Is there a sense of urgency in us? If you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, up here to my right, your left, Greg is up here in a button-up shirt. If you have any questions, if you're just kind of like, I, I don't get it, can you help me with this? Or maybe you're new and you're feeling something right now, come up here and talk to Greg. If you need prayer for anything, there are men and women on both sides of the stage, anything you need, listen, the Bible even says to confess your faults one to another. That doesn't mean that these people can absolve you of your sins, that's not a biblical thing. But they will listen to you if you wanna confess and get something off your chest and they can pray with you as a brother and sister in Christ. They can help you share that burden hold you accountable, whatever you need. There's also communion all the way around this room. That Listen, every single one of us in this room has the opportunity today to ask God to forgive us, to take communion, the, the body and the blood of Jesus, the bread and the wine, and we can remember that God loves us so much that he died for us that we don't have to be afraid of the end. As long as we have a relationship with Christ, we have nothing to be afraid of. And we can leave this place clean, and new and refreshed. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. Father, I pray, God, that you give us a sense of urgency, not out of fear, Lord, that's not, that's not how you operate, but God, that you let us fully comprehend that not only we, us as individuals, that we're going to be somewhere for eternity, but the people on our block, the people at our work, the people at our schools, our friends, our family, God, that they're also going to be judged. So Lord, I pray that we can reach out, that we can love people, that we can share the truth with people, that we can be an example to those around us, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Jesus. Protect my brothers and sisters in this room. Keep us safe, Lord. Keep us grounded. Keep us close to you. Keep us humble, Jesus, until we meet again, Lord. We love you and we thank you and it's in your name we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.